Section 5 of The Trial of Oscar Wilde by Anonymous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Trial of Oscar Wilde, Section 5. To return to the trial of Wilde and Taylor, as soon as the inquiry was resumed, Mr. Charles Matthews went down into the cells and had an interview with the prisoner Wilde, and on his return entered into serious consultation with his leader, Sir Edward Clarke. In the meanwhile, Taylor conversed with his counsel, Mr. Grain, across the rail of the dock. It was felt that an important announcement bearing on the conduct of the case was likely to be made. It came from Mr. Gill, representing the prosecution. As soon as Mr. Justice Charles had taken his seat, the prosecuting counsel rose and said that having considered the indictment, he had decided not to ask for a verdict in the two counts charging the prisoners with conspiracy. Subdued expressions of surprise were audible from the public gallery when Mr. Gill delivered himself of this dramatic announcement, and the sensation was strengthened a little later when Sir Edward Clarke informed the jury that both the prisoners desired to give evidence and would be called as witnesses. These matters having been determined upon, Sir Edward Clarke rose and proceeded to make some severe criticisms upon the conduct of the prosecution, in what he referred to as the literary part of the case. Hidden meanings, he said, had been most unjustly read into the poetical and prose works of his client, and it seemed that an endeavour, though a futile one, was to be made to convict Mr. Wilde because of a prurient construction which had been placed by his enemies upon certain of his works. He alluded particularly to Dorian Gray, which was an allegory pure and simple. According to the rather musty and far-fetched notions of the prosecution, it was an impure and simple allegory, but Wilde could not fairly be judged, he said, by the standards of other men, for he was a literary eccentric, though intellectually a giant, and he did not profess to be guided by the same sentiments as animated other and less highly endowed men. He then called Mr. Wilde. The prisoner rose with seeming alacrity from his place in the dock, walked with a firm tread and dignified demeanour to the witness-box, and, Leaning across the rail in the same easy and not ungraceful attitude that he assumed when examined by Mr. Carson in the libel action, prepared to answer the questions addressed to him by his counsel. Wilde was first interrogated as to his previous career. In the year 1884 he had married a Miss Lloyd, and from that time to the present he had continued to live with his wife at 16 Tite Street, Chelsea. He also occupied rooms in St. James's Place, which were rented for the purposes of his literary labours, as it was quite impossible to secure quiet and mental repose at his own house, when his two young sons were at home. He had heard the evidence in this case against himself, and asserted that there was no shadow of a foundation for the charges of indecent behaviour alleged against himself. Mr. Gill then rose to cross-examine, and the court at once became on the qui vive. Wilde seemed perfectly calm and did not change his attitude or tone of polite deprecation. Mr. Gill. You are acquainted with the publication entitled The Chameleon? Witness. Very well indeed. 
contributors to that journal are friends of yours that is so i believe that lord alfred douglas was a frequent contributor hardly that i think he wrote some verses occasionally for the chameleon and indeed for other papers the poems in question were somewhat peculiar they certainly were not mere commonplaces like so much that is labelled poetry the tone of them met with your critical approval it was not for me to approve or disapprove i leave that to the reviews at the trial queensbury and wilde you described them as beautiful poems i said something tantamount to that the verses were original in theme and construction and i admired them in one of the sonnets by lord a douglas a peculiar use is made of the word shame i have noticed the line you refer to what significance would you attach to the use of that word in connection with the idea of the poem i can hardly take it upon myself to explain the thoughts of another man you were remarkably friendly with the author perhaps he vouchsafed you an explanation on one occasion he did i should like to hear it lord alfred explained that the word shame was used in the sense of modesty i e to feel shame or not to feel shame you can perhaps understand that such verses as these would not be acceptable to the reader with an ordinarily balanced mind i'm not prepared to say it appears to me to be a question of taste temperament and individuality i should say that one man's poetry is another man's poison loud laughter i dare say there is another sonnet what construction can be put on the line i am the love that dare not speak its name i think the writer's meaning is quite unambiguous the love he alluded to was that between an elder and younger man as between david and jonathan such love as plato made the basis of his philosophy such as was sung in the sonnets of shakespeare and michelangelo that deep spiritual affection that was as pure as it was perfect it pervaded great works of art like those of michelangelo and shakespeare such as passeth the love of woman it was beautiful it was pure it was noble it was intellectual this love of an elder man with his experience of life and the younger with all the joy and hope of life before him the witness made this speech with great emphasis and some signs of emotion and there came from the gallery at its conclusion a medley of applause and hisses which his lordship at once ordered to be suppressed i wish to call your attention to the style of your correspondence with lord a douglas i am ready i am never ashamed of the style of any of my writings you are fortunate or shall i say shameless i refer to passages in two letters in particular kindly quote them in letter number one you use this expression your slim gilt soul and you refer to lord alfred's rose-leaf lips the letter is really a sort of prose sonnet in answer to an acknowledgment of one i had received from lord alfred do you think that an ordinarily constituted being would address such expressions to a younger man i'm not happily i think an ordinarily constituted being it is agreeable to be able to agree with you mr wilde laughter there is i assure you nothing in either letter of which i need to be ashamed you have heard the evidence of the lad charles parker yes 
Of Atkins? Yes. Of Shelley? Yes. And these witnesses have, you say, lied throughout? Their evidence as to my association with them, as to the dinners taking place and the small presents I gave them, is mostly true. But there is not a particle of truth in that part of the evidence which alleged improper behaviour. Why did you take up with these youths? I am a lover of youth. Laughter. You exalt youth as a sort of god? I like to study the young in everything. There is something fascinating in youthfulness. So you would prefer puppies to dogs and kittens to cats? Laughter. I think so. I should enjoy, for instance, the society of a beardless, briefless barrister quite as much as that of the most accomplished QC. Loud laughter. I hope the former, whom I represent in large numbers, will appreciate the compliment. More laughter. These youths were much inferior to you in station? I never inquired, nor did I care what station they occupied. I found them, for the most part, bright and entertaining. I found their conversation a change. It acted as a kind of mental tonic. You saw nothing peculiar or suggestive in the arrangement of Taylor's rooms? I cannot say that I did. They were bohemian, that is all. I have seen stranger rooms. You never suspected the relations that might exist between Taylor and his young friends? I had no need to suspect anything. Taylor's relations with his friends appeared to me to be quite normal. You have attended to the evidence of the witness Mabel? I have. Is it true or false? It is mainly true, but false inferences have been drawn from it as from most of the evidence. Truth may be found, I believe, at the bottom of a well. It is apparently difficult to find it in a court of law. Laughter. Nevertheless, we endeavour to extract it. Did the witness Mabel write you expressing a wish to break off the acquaintance? I received a rather unaccountable and impertinent letter from him for which he afterwards expressed great regret. Why should he have written it if your conduct had been altogether blameless? I do not profess to be able to explain the motives of most of the witnesses. Maver may have been told some falsehood about me. His father was greatly incensed at his conduct at this time, and I believe attributed his son's erratic courses to his friendship with me. I do not think Maver altogether to blame. Pressure was brought to bear upon him, and he was not then quite right in his mind. You made handsome presents to these young fellows? Pardon me, I differ. I gave two or three of them a cigarette case. Boys of that class smoke a good deal of cigarettes. I have a weakness for presenting my acquaintances with cigarette cases. Rather an expensive habit, if indulged in indiscriminately. Less extravagant than giving dueled garters to ladies? Laughter. When a few more unimportant questions had been asked, Wilde left the witness box, returning to the dock with the same air of what might be described as serious easiness. The impression created by his replies was not, upon the whole, favourable to his cause. His place was taken by the prisoner Taylor. He said that he was thirty-three years of age and was educated at Marlborough. When he was twenty-one he came into forty-five thousand pounds. In a few years he ran through this fortune 
and at about the time he went to chapel street he was made a bankrupt the charges made against him of misconduct were entirely unfounded he was asked point-blank if he had not been given to sodomy from his early youth and if he had not been expelled from a public school for being caught in a compromising situation with a small boy in the lavatory taylor was also asked if he had not actually obtained a living since his bankruptcy by procuring lads and young men for rich gentlemen whom he knew to be given to this vice he was also asked if he had not extracted large sums of money from wealthy men by threatening to accuse them of immoralities to all these plain questions he returned in direct answer no after the luncheon interval sir edward clarke rose to address the jury in defence of oscar wilde he began by carefully analysing the evidence he declared that the wretches who had come forward to admit their own disgrace were shameless creatures incapable of one manly thought or one manly action they were without exception blackmailers they lived by luring men to their rooms generally on the pretence that a beautiful girl would be provided for them on their arrival once in their clutches these victims could only get away by paying a large sum of money unless they were prepared to face and deny the most disgraceful charges innocent men constantly paid rather than face the odium attached to the breath even of such scandals they had moreover wives and childrens daughters maybe or a sister whose honour or name they were obliged to consider therefore they usually submitted to be fleeced and in this way this wretched wood and the abject atkins had been able to go about the west end well fed and well dressed these youths had been introduced to wilde they were pleasant spoken enough and outwardly decent in their language and conduct wilde was taken in by them and permitted himself to enjoy their society he did not defend wilde for this he had unquestionably shown imprudence but a man of his temperament could not be judged by the standards of the average individual these youths had come forward to make these charges in a conspiracy to ruin his client was it likely he asked that a man of wilde's cleverness would put himself so completely in the power of these harpies as he would be if guilty of only a tenth of the enormities they alleged against him if wilde practised these acts so openly and so flagrantly if he allowed the facts to come to the knowledge of so many then he was a fool who was not fit to be at large if the evidence was to be credited these acts of gross indecency which culminated in actual crime were done in so open a manner as to compel the intention of landladies and housemaids he was not himself and he thanked heaven for it versed in the acts of those who committed these crimes against nature he did not know under what circumstances they could be practised but he believed that this was a vice which because of the horror and repulsion it excited because of the fury it provoked against those guilty of it was conducted with the utmost possible secrecy he respectfully submitted that no jury could find a man guilty on the evidence of these tainted witnesses take the testimony he said of atkins this young man had denied that he had ever been charged at a police station with alleging blackmail yet he was able to prove that he had grossly perjured himself in this and other directions that was a sample of evidence and atkins was a type of the witnesses 
the only one of these youths who had ever attempted to get a decent living or who was not an experienced blackmailer was maver and he had denied that wilde had ever been guilty of any impropriety with him the prosecution had sought to make capital out of two letters written by wilde to lord alfred douglas he pointed out a fact which was of considerable importance namely that wilde had produced one of these letters himself was that the act of a man who had reason to fear the contents of a letter being known wilde never made any secret of visiting taylor's rooms he found there society which afforded him variety and change wilde made no secret of giving dinners to some of the witnesses he thought that they were poorly off and that a good dinner at a restaurant did not often come their way on only one occasion did he hire a private room the dinners were perfectly open and above board wilde was an extraordinary man and he had written letters which might seem high-flown extravagant exaggerated absurd if they liked but he was not afraid or ashamed to produce these letters the witnesses charles parker alfred wood and atkins had been proved to have previously been guilty of blackmailing of this kind and upon their uncorroborated evidence surely the jury would not convict the prisoner on such terrible charges fix your minds concluded sir edward earnestly firmly on the tests that ought to be applied to the evidence as a whole before you can condemn a fellow-man to a charge like this remember all that this charge implied of implicable ruin and inevitable disgrace then i trust that the result of your deliberations will be to gratify those thousand hopes that are waiting upon your verdict i trust that verdict will clear from this fearful imputation one of the most accomplished and renowned men of letters of to-day at the end of this peroration there was some slight applause at the back of the court but it was hushed almost at once wilde had paid great attention to the speech on his behalf and on one or two occasions had pressed his hands to his eyes as if expressing some not unnatural emotion the speech concluded however he resumed his customary attitude and awaited with apparent firmness all that might befall mr grain then rose to address the jury on behalf of taylor he submitted that there was really no case against his client an endeavour had been made to prove that taylor was in the habit of introducing to wilde youths whom he knew to be amenable to the practices of the latter and that he got paid for this degrading work the attempt to establish this disgusting association between taylor and wilde had completely broken down he was it was true acquainted with parker wood and atkins he had seen them constantly in restaurants and music halls and they had at first forced themselves upon his notice and thus got acquainted with a man whom they designed for blackmail all the resources of the crown had been unable to produce any corroboration of the charges made by these witnesses how had taylor got his livelihood it might be asked he was perfectly prepared to answer the question he had been living on an allowance made him by members of his late father's firm a firm with which all their present were familiar was it in the least degree likely that such scenes as the witnesses described with such apparent candour and such wealth of filthy detail could have taken place in taylor's own apartments it was incredible that a man could thus risk almost certain discovery in conclusion he confidently looked for the acquittal of his client who was guilty of nothing more than having made imprudent acquaintances 
and having trusted too much to the descriptions of themselves given by others mr gill then replied for the prosecution in a closely reasoned and most able speech which occupied two hours in delivery and which created an enormous impression in the crowded court he commented at great length upon the evidence he contended that in a case of this description corroboration was of comparatively minor importance for it was not in the least likely that acts of the kind alleged would be practised before a third party who might afterwards swear to the fact therefore when the witnesses described what had transpired when they and the prisoners were alone he did not think that corroboration could possibly be given there was not likely to be an eye-witness of the facts but in respect to many things he declared the evidence was corroborated whatever the character of these youths might be they had given evidence as to certain facts and no cross-examination however adroit however vigorous had shaken their testimony or caused them to waver about that which was evidently firmly implanted in their memories a man might conceivably come forward and commit perjury but these youths were accusing themselves in accusing another of shameful and infamous acts and this they would hardly do if it were not the truth wilde had made presents to these youths and it was noticeable that the gifts were invariably made after he had been alone at some rooms or other with one another of the lads in the circumstances even a silver cigarette case was corroboration his learned friend had protested against any evil construction being placed upon these gifts and these dinners but in the name of common sense what other construction was possible when they heard of a man like wilde presumably of refined and cultured tastes who might if he wished enjoy the society of the best and most cultivated men and women in london accompanying to nice and other places on the continent uninformed unintellectual and vulgar ill-bred youths of the type of charles parker then in heaven's name what were they to think all those visits all those dinners all those gifts were corroboration they served to confirm the truth of the statements made by the youths who confessed to the commission of acts for which the things he had quoted were positive and actual payment in the case of the witness sidney mavor it was clear that wilde had in some way continued to discuss this youth some acts of wilde either towards himself or towards others had offended him was not the letter which mavor had addressed to the prisoner desiring the cessation of their friendship corroboration at this moment his lordship interposed and said that although the evidence of this witness was clearly of importance he had denied that he had been guilty of impropriety and he did not think the count in reference to maver could stand after some discussion this count was struck out of the indictment before concluding mr gill stated that he had withdrawn the conspiracy count to prevent any embarrassment to sir edward clarke who had complained that he was affected in his defence by the counts being joined mr gill said in conclusion that it was the duty of the jury to express their verdict without fear or favour they owed a duty to society however sorry they might feel themselves at the moral downfall of an eminent man to protect society from such scandals by removing from its heart a sore which could not fail in time to corrupt and taint it all mr justice charles then commenced his summing up 
his lordship at the outset said he thought mr gill had taken a wise course in withdrawing the conspiracy counts and thus relieving them all of an embarrassing position he did not see why the conspiracy counts need have been inserted at all and he should direct the jury to return a verdict of acquittal on those charges as well as upon one other count against taylor to which he would further allude and upon which no sufficient evidence had been given he the learned judge asked the jury to apply their minds solely to the evidence which had been given any preconceived notion which they might have formed from reading about the case he urged them to dismiss from their minds and to deal with the case as it had been presented to them by the witnesses his lordship went on to ask the jury not to attach too much importance to the uncorroborated evidence of accomplices in such cases as these had there been no corroboration in this case it would have been his duty to instruct the jury accordingly but he was clearly of opinion that there was corroboration to all the witnesses not it is true the conspiracy testimony of eyewitnesses but corroboration of the narrative generally three of the witnesses charles parker wood and atkins were not only accomplices but they had been properly described by sir edward clarke as persons of bad character atkins out of his own mouth was convicted of having told the most gross and deliberate falsehoods the jury knew how this matter came before them as the outcome of the trial of lord queensbury for alleged libel the learned judge proceeded to outline the features of the queensbury trial commenting most upon what was called the literary part of wilde's examination in that case the judge said that he had not read dorian gray but extracts were read at the former trial and the present jury had a general idea of the story he did not think they ought to base any unfavourable inference upon the fact that wilde was the author of that work it would not be fair to do so for while it was true that there were many great writers such for instance as sir walter scott and charles dickens who never penned an offensive line there were other great authors whose pens dealt with subjects not so innocent as for wilde's aphorisms in the chameleon some were amusing some were cynical and some were if he might be allowed to say so simple but there was nothing in per se to convict wilde of indecent practices however the same paper contained a very indecent contribution the priest and the acolyte mr wilde had nothing to do with that in the chameleon also appeared two poems by lord alfred douglas one called in praise of shame and the other called two loves it was said that these sonnets had an immoral tendency and that wilde approved them he was examined at great length about these sonnets i was also asked about the two letters written by him to lord alfred douglas letters that had been written before the publication of the above-mentioned poems in the previous case mr carson had insisted that these letters were indecent on the other hand wilde had told them that he was not ashamed of them as they were intended in the nature of prose poems and breathed the pure love of one man for another such a love as david had for jonathan and such as plato described as the beginning of wisdom he would next deal with the actual charges 
and would first call their attention to the offence alleged to have been committed with edward shelley at the beginning of eighteen ninety two shelley was undoubtedly in the position of an accomplice but his evidence was corroborated he was not however tainted with the offences with which parker wood and atkins were connected he seemed to be a person of some education and a fondness for literature as to shelley's visit to the albemarle hotel the jury were the best judges of the demeanour of the witness wilde denied all the allegations of indecency though he admitted the other parts of the young man's story his lordship called attention to the letters written by shelley to wilde in eighteen ninety two eighteen ninety three and eighteen ninety four it was he said a very anxious part of the jury's task to account for the tone of these letters and for shelley's conduct generally it became a question as to whether or no his mind was disordered he felt bound to say that though there was evidence of great excitability to talk of either shelley or maver as an insane youth was an exaggeration but it would be for the jury to draw their own conclusions passing to the case of atkins the judge drew attention to his meeting with taylor in november eighteen ninety two to the dinner at the cafe florence at which wilde taylor atkins and lord a douglas were present and to the visit of atkins to paris in company with wilde after dwelling on the circumstances of that visit his lordship referred to wilde's two visits to atkins in osnaburgh street in december eighteen ninety three wilde explained the paris visit by saying that schweber had arranged to take atkins to paris but being unable to leave at the time appointed he asked wilde to take charge of the youth and he did so out of friendship for schweber wilde further denied that he was much in atkins company when in paris atkins certainly was an unreliable witness and had obviously given an incorrect version of his relations with burton he told the grossest falsehoods with regard to their arrest and was convicted out of his own mouth when recalled by sir e clark it was for the jury to decide how much of atkins evidence they might safely believe then there were the events described as having occurred at the savoy hotel in march eighteen ninety two he would ask the jury to be careful in the evidence of the chambermaid jane cotter and the interpretation they put upon it if her evidence and that of the monsieur midgey were true then wilde's evidence on that part of the case was untrue and the jury must use their own discretion he did not wish to enlarge upon this most unpleasant part of the whole unpleasant case but it was necessary to remind the jury as discreetly as he could that the chambermaid had objected to making the bed on several occasions after wilde and atkins had been in the bedroom alone together there were she had affirmed indications on the sheets that conduct of the grossest kind had been indulged in he thought it his duty to remind the jury that there might be an innocent explanation of these stains though the evidence of jane cotter certainly afforded a kind of corroboration of these charges and of atkins's own story in reference to the case of wood he contrasted wood's account with that of wilde it seemed that lord alfred douglas had met wood at taylor's rooms in response to a telegram from the former 
Wood went to the Café Royale and there met Wilde for the first time, Wilde speaking first. On the other hand, Wilde represented that Wood spoke first. The jury might think that in any case the circumstances of that meeting were remarkable, especially when taken in conjunction with what followed. There was no doubt that Wood had fallen into evil courses, and he and Allen had extracted the sum of three hundred pounds in blackmail. The interview between Wilde and Wood prior to the latter's departure for America was remarkable. A sum of money said to be thirty pounds was given by Wilde to Wood, and Wood returned some of Wilde's letters that had somehow come into his possession. Wood, however, kept back one letter which got into Allen's possession. Wood got five pounds more on the following day, went to America, and while there wrote to Taylor a letter in which occurred the passage, Tell Oscar if he likes he can send me a draft for an Easter egg. It would be for the jury to consider what would have been the inner meaning of these and other transactions. As to the prisoner Taylor, he had, on his own admission, led a life of idleness, and got through a fortune of £45,000. It was alleged that the prisoner had virtually turned his apartments into a bagno or brothel, in which young men took the place of prostitutes, and that his character in this regard was well known to those who were secretly given to this particular vice. One of the offences imputed to Taylor had reference to Charles Parker, who had spoken of the peculiar arrangement of the rooms, there were two bedrooms in the inner room with folding doors between and the windows were heavily draped so that no one from the opposite houses could possibly see what was going on inside heavy curtains it was said hung before all the doors so that it could not be possible for an eavesdropper to hear what was proceeding inside there was a curiously shaped sofa in the sitting-room and the whole aspect of the room resembled it was asserted a fashionable resort for vice. Wilde was undoubtedly present at some of the tea-parties given there, and did not profess to be surprised at what he saw there. It had been shown that both the Parkers went to these rooms, and, further, that Charles Parker had received thirty pounds of the blackmail extorted by Wood and Allen. Charles Parker's evidence was therefore doubly tainted like that of Wood and Atkins, but his evidence was to some extent confirmed by that of his brother, William. Some parts of Charles Parker's evidence were also corroborated by other witnesses, as, for instance, by Marjorie Bancroft, who swore that she saw Wilde visit Charles Parker's rooms in Park Walk. It was admitted that this Parker visited Wilde at St. James's Place. Charles Parker had been arrested with Taylor in the Fitzroy Square raid, and this went to show that they were in the habit of associating with those suspected of offences of the kind alleged. Both, however, were on that occasion discharged, and Parker enlisted in the army. It was quite manifest that Charles Parker was of a low class of morality. That concluded the various charges made in this case, and he had very little to add, Maver's evidence had little or no value with reference to the issues now before the jury, except as showing how he became acquainted with Wilde and Taylor. 
so far as it went mavor's evidence was rather in favour of wilde than otherwise and nothing indecent had been proved against that witness in conclusion his lordship submitted the case to the jury in the confident hope that they would do justice to themselves on the one hand and to the two defendants on the other the learned judge concluded by further directing the jury as to the issues and asked them to form their opinions on the evidence and to give the case their careful consideration the judge left the following questions to the jury first whether wilde committed certain offences with shelley wood with a person or persons unknown at the savoy hotel or with charles parker secondly whether taylor procured the commission of those acts or any of them thirdly did wilde or taylor or either of them attempt to get atkins to commit certain offences with wilde and fourthly did taylor commit certain acts with either charles parker or wood the jury retired at one thirty five the summing up of the judge having taken exactly three hours at three o'clock a communication was brought from the jury and conveyed by the clerk of arraigns to the judge and shortly afterwards the jury had luncheon taken into them at four fifteen the judge sent for the clerk of arraigns mr avery who proceeded to his lordship's private room subsequently mr avery went to the jury apparently with a communication from the judge and returned in a few minutes to the judge's private room shortly before five o'clock the usher brought a telegram from one of the jurors and after it had been shown to the clerk of arraigns it was allowed to be dispatched eventually the jury returned into court at a quarter past five o'clock the verdict the judge i have received a communication from you to the effect that you are unable to arrive at an agreement now is there anything you desire to ask me in reference to the case the foreman i have put that question to my fellow jurymen my lord and i do not think there is any doubt that we cannot agree upon three of the questions i find from the entry which you have written against the various subdivisions of number one that you cannot agree as to any of those subdivisions that is so my lord is there no prospect of an agreement if you retire to your room i fear not you have not been inconvenienced i ordered what you required and there is no prospect that with a little more deliberation you may come to an agreement as to some of them my fellow jurymen say there is no possibility i am very unwilling to prejudice your deliberations and i have no doubt that you have done your best to arrive at an agreement on the other hand i would point out to you that the inconveniences of a new trial are very great if you thought that by deliberating a reasonable time you could arrive at a conclusion upon any of the questions i have asked you i would ask you to do so we considered the matter before coming into court and i do not think there is any chance of agreement we have considered it again and again if you tell me that i do not think i am justified in detaining you any longer sir edward clark i wish to ask my lord that a verdict may be given in the conspiracy counts mr gill 
I wish to oppose that. I directed the acquittal of the prisoners on the conspiracy counts this morning. I thought that was the right course to adopt, and the same remark might be made with regard to the two counts in which Taylor was charged with improper conduct towards Wood and Parker. It was unfortunate that the real and material questions which had occupied the jury's attention for such a length of time were matters upon which the jury were unable to agree. Upon these matters and upon the counts which were concerned with them, I must discharge the jury. I wish to apply for bail, then, for Mr. Wilde. Mr. Hall. And I make the same application on behalf of Taylor. I don't feel able to accede to the applications. I shall probably renew the application, my lord. That would be to a judge in chambers. The case will assuredly be tried again, and probably it will go to the next sessions. The two prisoners, who had listened to all this very attentively, were then conducted from the dock. Wilde had listened to the foreman of the jury's statement without any show of feeling. It was stated that the failure of the jury to agree upon a verdict was owing to three out of the twelve being unable upon the evidence placed before them to arrive at any other conclusion than that of not guilty. The following day, Mr. Baron Pollock decided that Oscar Wilde should be allowed out on bail in his own recognizances of £2,500 and two sureties of £1,250 each. Wilde was brought up at Bow Street next day and the sureties attended. After a further application, bail in his case was granted and he went out of prison, for the present a free man, but with Nemesis, in the shape of the second trial, awaiting him. End of section 5